Welcome back to As the Prop Turns. I'm your host, Kat, and today I have some November history for you. Um, we are wrapping up the month with our last November story, even though technically today is the first day of December now. Um, but last week we shared two stories on Trend with Thanksgiving. And this week, we will be talking about a very different story, uh, one about the 1979 Air New Zealand crash in Antarctica. I almost feel like I'm going off on a, a sub-segment with this one. Maybe we should have a sub-segment within our history segment for airplane crashes. Um, crashes are a really good teaching tool um, since you know flight training is really focused on the what-ifs. They're a very sad but helpful example of you know what you shouldn't do in certain situations. So today we are talking about Air New Zealand Flight 901. So they used to offer sightseeing tours of Antarctica in the 70s uh, from New Zealand and um, I couldn't find the exact time range of when they did them or if they still do them but at this time they had offered them for three years. Um, so at 1979, doing them for three years, they would have started doing them in 1976. Um, and they had done 13 total sightseeing tours over those three years. Um, but New Zealand is kind of close to Ant Antarctica. Um, it's about 3,000 miles, but Ross Island, which is specifically where they went on these tours, was about 7,000 miles because it was in the cove of Antarctica in the Southern Ocean. If you look at a map, you'll, you'll see what I'm talking about. So this flight was sold out. It was a special event that they were advertising on this flight. They had lobster on board, caviar, champagne. So it was definitely like a bougie thing to go on this flight, enjoy, you know, the, the rich life, the high life. And then 11 hours later, they would get to see these beautiful views of Antarctica, which is something that not a lot of people get to experience. So they got these awesome views of Mount Erebus, which was an active volcano out near Ross Island that was named after Greek mythology, meaning the gateway to the underworld. It's a very dark and ominous name. So they had a tour guide on board, the famous Peter Mulgrew, who was actually a specialist of Antarctica. So that was pretty cool and that he was the one that got to kind of lead these tours. But this particular flight planned to depart from Christchurch International Airport on the south side of uh, New Zealand. And they were flying to McMurdo Station at the south end of Ross Island. So this would total be an 11 hour flight, about 5,000 miles. So, side note, there are actually 20 airports in Antarctica currently. Um, who knew? The airport that this flight was going to, although they didn't actually land, they don't touch down or land on these flights, but the airport that would have been closest to them was um, McMurdo Station, and it was called the Ice Runway. And um, it is the continent's busiest airport since this is where the McMurdo Station, uh, which is a huge you know, science research facility that thousands of people live there and, and do science research. So, um, But the ice runway is actually really interesting. It's comprised of three runways built on seasonal ice on the water off of the McMurdo Sound. So it's on top of the water. And it's operational September through November. So only three months um, 
of the year can sustain the ice out there, but it can accommodate pretty much any aircraft size, like a C-17, but the aircraft do have to be outfitted with ski-type landing gear. That is so cool. Like, who would have thought that, I mean, I didn't think Antarctica even had airports, but I guess if you had a runway that was strictly made of ice, you could not land with tires. Back to the story. So this particular excursion had been done 13 times before over the three years, like I had mentioned earlier. This flight was operated on a five-year-old McDonnell Douglas DC-10. Operating this flight was flight crew of five, cabin crew of 15, and then um, 237 passengers. So 257 people total on board. And the captain of the flight was Captain Thomas James Collins. Collins was typed in the DC-10 and he had 11,000 hours total time and 3,000 in the DC-10. So he was very experienced. Because of the length of the flight, they also had uh, two first officers and then two flight engineers on board. All very experienced, qualified pilots and engineers but none of them had actually done one of these Antarctica excursions before. They haven't even flown to Antarctica, so this was kind of all new to them. Um, and because of this, the captain and the first officer did do some prep for the flight 19 days prior. So they did a whole briefing um, as well as a test flight in the simulator. So the route that they had to take was a little complicated because they had to circumvent the active volcano, Mount Erebus. They had waypoints to follow and then their minimum altitude through there because of the volcano was 16,000 feet. This was the safest way that they could descend allowing passengers to be able to see what they could of Mount Erebus. So the captain and the FO doing the prep for the flight, they were good to go, um, but the flight planner or the dispatcher uh, for this flight was reviewing their flight plan and realized that some of the data was incorrect. Um, the correct coordinates would have taken them the typical route that was taken throughout all 13 excursions, which would have taken them west of the volcano over the water. But the coordinates that were entered took them right over the front of the volcano. So they were right in the direct path of the volcano. This data was corrected, but then the flight crew was never informed. So I guess back then, you know, the way that they kind of prepped for flights was a lot different than now. And, and this may be one of the reasons why, because I feel like every time there is, you know, unfortunate incident in aviation, they come up with some you know, rules and regulations to help prevent that in the future. So the flight proceeded as normal to what the pilots were aware of. So they were using the wrong coordinates on this flight. As they were approaching, they were 140 miles out, 40 minutes north of the McMurdo station. And they noticed that the weather was actually a lot worse than they had originally reported. Everything was quote, whited out is, is how they explained it. They couldn't even see the mountain or, you know, Mount Erebus. So clouds were low, they were down to 2,000 feet, um, and the captain even commented that it is going to be hard for them to differentiate between clouds and then like the ice and snow of the ground. Essentially everything would just be white. Tower had advised the flight crew to detour over the mainland where the weather was actually fine, and then they would loop back around to Ross Island. So kind of go the long way instead of going over the water, they would go over the mainland. But again, remember, they're on the wrong coordinates. So the captain decided to deviate and thought that he would 
be able to descend low enough for the passengers to be able to see the volcano. Uh, well, little did the crew know, they were on the wrong path. So they wanted to descend to 1500 feet because they did see a clearing and thought that they would be able to get a good visual of the volcano since it seemed like the weather was better right below that cloud layer. And because they were on the wrong path, this caused them to fly straight into the front of the volcano. Now I have a picture of their flight path and the flight path they were supposed to be on on our Instagram, so definitely go check that out for the visual. It shows perfectly as to what they were supposed to be doing and what they actually did and the captain's thought process behind going down to 1500 would have worked if they were on their original flight path. So they were told to maintain 16,000 feet due to that active volcano, but Mac Tower is telling them to maintain flight level 180, which is 18,000 feet. Now I don't think that there were radar GPS type things back in this time. And so I don't think Tower was able to see that they were on the wrong path. They were basically going off of the flight path that they were supposed to be taking. So when Tower cleared them to descend to that 1500, I don't think they realized exactly where they were in terms of that volcano. So they descend and they're flying along and the crew is looking for the landmarks. They can't see anything. The tour guide even comes up to the front and he's like, I can't see anything. That's why I'm not, you know, talking to the passengers through what we're seeing out the window. Like we can't see anything. Seconds later, um, you know, you can hear on the black box recording, whoop, whoop, pull, and then it stops. Um, transmissions from flight 901, were gone. Tower tried to reach them, nothing. And the plane ran right into the side of the mountain at 300 miles per hour with 70 tons of fuel igniting that plane. The tail engine breaks off and it looks like the volcano had erupted. Like that's how big this explosion was. It took rescuers 12 hours to even find the wreckage due to the visibility. It was just an absolute obliterated to pieces and everyone on board died upon impact. Now the cause of the accident on this flight was determined to be pilot error for flying too low with poor visibility. There was actually a parliament investigation on this flight in 1981 that created a report called the Mann Report stating it was the cause of this uh, accident was due to incompetent airline procedures absolving the pilots of blame. You know, you could look at this both ways. I think that, you know, I don't really know what technology they had back then, but you could look at it both ways saying, you know, like, yes, the the flight planner did not update the crew with the, with the correct information and they were originally told wrong information. But then you can also say like when the pilots were actually flying, like, and they experienced all these different conditions, like, should they have continued? So it's just one of those things where you kind of have to look at all areas of the situation. But it's such a sad story. If they would have been on that correct course, they they would have been over the open water and, and this probably wouldn't have happened. But this just goes to show how important, you know, GPS and radar are and, you know, making sure that your instruments are working properly because if you are in, you know, a whiteout or in the clouds, you have to rely on those instruments. And like I said earlier, like, I don't think that, I'm pretty sure that 
they didn't have any sort of radar back then where Tower would have seen that they were on the wrong course headed straight for that volcano and they wouldn't have approved that visual descent. So, very sad, but like I said, I think something was learned from, from this story. So, but stay tuned for next week and we'll have another On This Day in Aviation History episode for you. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Kat Granary, and thanks for listening to As the Prop Turns. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Anchor, for making all this possible. And of course, all of our listeners. Be sure to check us out on Instagram, TikTok, LinkedIn, and Facebook, handle at Superior Flight School. And remember, keep the blue side up.